Section 10 of the Medici, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Adrian Stevens. The Medici, Volume 1 by G. F. Young. Chapter 4. Cosimo. Pater Patriae. Part 5. Filippo Lippi. In 1441, Filippo Lippi, who had been Masaccio's pupil, finished his painting of the Coronation of the Madonna, considered his best picture in Florence. A greater contrast could scarcely be found than that between the two chief painters of Cosimo's time, Fra Angelico and Filippo Lippi, for Lippi was in everything the antithesis of his contemporary Fra Angelico. The orphan son of a butcher, he was left as a boy in charge of an aunt, who, finding him an idle ne'er-do-well, put him as a novice into the nearest monastic community, that of the Carmelites, in whose church of the Carmine Masaccio was then painting his frescoes. The monks, owing to his laziness, could do nothing with him, but, watching Masaccio at his work, Lippi thought this an easier task than learning to read and write, and Masaccio, finding he could draw, taught him his art. Lippi was sixteen when Masaccio died, and in the following year, Vasari says, Lippi boldly threw off the monastic habit, and took to painting for a livelihood. Though he signs himself Frater Philippus, he had no right to the term, as he had entirely discarded his vows, and owing to his disreputable conduct, no religious community would own him. His life was a disturbed one, as his drunken character and constant feuds upon those who employed him caused him to be always in trouble. After being several times brought up before the authorities for various misdemeanours, at length for a particularly flagrant case of embezzlement he was flogged. Lippi's character, however, only affected his credit as a painter by accounting for the kind of success he achieved. He had, as was to be expected, no ears for the message which Donatello was at this time teaching, and consequently his pictures on religious subjects have an exceedingly mundane character. Nevertheless, the sweet seriousness of his Madonnas falls in no way short of those of Fra Angelico, and the faces of his children are full of a quaint, mischievous character, which is delightful, while in both drawing and colouring he shows the immense advance which had now taken place in painting. And it is here that Lippi's true claim to fame lies. Masaccio, the only man who up to that time had found out the true methods of the art of painting, had died too soon himself to be able to make known his discovery, except to the few who could visit Florence and the Branacci chapel. It was left for Lippi, the rough boy whom he had taught, to show the world Masaccio's discovery. And Lippi did so. Vasari says, Taught as he had been by Masaccio, he was a faithful follower of Masaccio's style. And he adds that he followed the latter's methods so faithfully that it appeared that the spirit of Masaccio had entered Lippi's body. Thus, what Masaccio had done for the art of painting is chiefly to be seen by a comparison of Lippi's pictures with those of Masaccio's immediate predecessors, the Giotteschi. Lippi's principal picture in Florence is his Coronation of the Virgin, painted for Cosimo, 
and now in the Accademia della Bellarti. But his best work is considered to be his frescoes in the cathedral at Prato, painted between 1456 and 1465. A serious error of the last generation has caused much injustice to Masaccio, and has been widely spread through Robert Browning's poem on Lippi. He makes Lippi speak of Masaccio as a youngster, then just learning to paint. Lippi saying that after his death this Guidi may perhaps rob him of his laurels. This is owing to Masaccio's date being in Browning's time, imagined to be later than it really is, so that Lippi was supposed to have preceded him, with the result that Lippi, instead of Masaccio, gained all the credit of the great advance in painting which exists between the Giotteschi and Masaccio. The pathos which throughout attaches to Masaccio is thus still further increased. Not only is he crushed with poverty throughout his life, and his great fame only one after death, but in addition even those laurels are in later times given to the pupil whom he had out of a rough kindness taught for nothing. And then, as the crowning point, this Tommaso Guidi, this great genius who is the founder of all modern painting, and from whom even Raphael was glad to learn, becomes known to posterity only as Clumsy Tom. The fuller information now available has put this matter right, and more particularly the registers of the Catasto tax for the years 1421 to 1428, which give definite and conclusive evidence as to Masaccio's date and circumstances. Though even without this, Vasari's remark should have sufficed to prevent the mistake. Lippi died in 1469 at the age of 57. Minor Sculptors Though the transcendent genius of Donatello threw all others into the shade, there were various other distinguished sculptures who also flourished at this period, making Cosimo's time specially notable in this branch of art. The chief of these were Desiderio da Settignano, a pupil of Donatello, and eminent among the sculptors of this time. Perkins considers his tomb of Carlo Masupini in Santa Croce as one of the three finest tombs in Tuscany, while he says of the bust of Marietta Palastrozzi, Quote, it would be difficult to point out a bust which more thoroughly combines those peculiar features of the best quattrocento work, high technical excellence, refinement of taste, delicacy of treatment, and purity of design. Unquote. The beautiful head of St. Cecilia in Stiacciato, low relief, now the property of Lord Weems, which used to be attributed to Donatello, is now said to be by Desiderio. Bernardo and Antonio Rossellino Bernardo Rossellino executed the fine tomb of Leonardo Bruni in Santa Croce and the monument of Beata Villana in the Rucellai Chapel in Santa Maria Novella. Of Antonio Rossellino, Perkins says, quote, he possessed grace, delicacy of treatment, dignity, and a rare feeling of beauty and sweetness of expression, as we see in the noble monument of the Cardinal Portogallo at San Miniato, Florence. Unquote. He considers this tomb one of the most beautiful in Italy. 
Mino da Fia Sol. Another still more famous sculptor of this period, who outlived those previously mentioned. His works show a refined taste, great delicacy of detail, and much devotional feeling. Regarding his tomb of Bishop Salutati in the cathedral of Fiesol, Perkins says, quote, The bust of the bishop is certainly one of the most living and strongly characterized counterfeit presentments of nature ever produced in marble. Unquote. Mino da Fiesol also executed the beautiful tabernacle in the Medici chapel at Santa Croce, and many busts, altarpieces, and other celebrated works during the time of Piero il Gottoso and Lorenzo the Magnificent. Antonio and Piero Polagiuolo. These two brothers were celebrated sculptors, painters, goldsmiths, and medalists of the time. Their renown belongs almost entirely to Antonio, his younger brother, Piero, producing little notable work. Antonio's principal existing work in Florence is the silver altar of the baptistry, kept in the Opera del Duomo, and in Rome his two tombs of Pope Sixtus IV and Pope Innocent VIII. The fine medal of the Pazzi Conspiracy, hitherto attributed to him, is now said to be by Bertoldo, the well-known pupil of Donatello, Antonio Polagiuolo, was no less celebrated as a painter than as a sculptor and medalist. In 1460, three large and very famous canvases, five braccia high, about nine feet, were painted by him for the hall of the Medici Palace, depicting the combats of Hercules with the lion, with the hydra, and with Antaeus. Vasari describes them in detail, and speaks with great admiration of their execution. When the Medici Palace was sacked in 1494, they were appropriated by the Signoria and removed to the Council Hall of the Palazzo della Signoria, where they hung for many years, but have since been lost. Vasari, in mentioning them, states that they were painted for Lorenzo the Magnificent, but this must be a mistake on his part, for in a letter of Pollagiuolo's own, he states that he painted them in 1460, and at that time Cosimo was head of the house, and his grandson Lorenzo, a boy of only eleven years old. So that they were painted for Cosimo. There were two small panel pictures on the same subject by Pollagiuolo, now in the Uffizi Gallery, evidently painted about the same time, and these give us an idea of what the celebrated canvases which adorned the walls of the principal reception room of the Medici Palace in the time of Cosimo Piero and Lorenzo were like. Cosimo, 1463 to 1464. Cosimo grew old very rapidly, suffering severely from gout, and in his later years becoming very infirm, which caused him to leave the home affairs of the state to a very large extent to others, a condition of things under which we first hear of the incapable Luca Pitti who during the last four years of Cosimo's life thrust himself into a prominent place in public matters, though Cosimo still kept foreign affairs in his own hands. His long labours for his country's welfare had borne their full fruit. None now questioned or attempted to disturb the position he had so deservedly gained. 
we find the signoria in an official document a letter to the venetian republic calling him capo della repubblica though he held no official position at the time and head of the republic he was universally acknowledged to be to the very end of his life giovanni cosimo like his father had two sons piero born in fourteen sixteen and giovanni born in fourteen twenty one the death of the latter at the age of forty-two is the last prominent incident connected with cosimo's life giovanni had all the family love of learning and many rare manuscript books collected by him are still in the medici library in san lorenzo his portrait bust by mino da fiesole who knew him well gives us a thoroughly reliable representation of his appearance as the chronic ill-health of his elder brother piero made it unlikely that the latter would survive their father giovanni was brought up as the future head of the family was looked on by all as his father's successor and was cosimo's favourite son to a family situated as the medici were at this time it was of the utmost importance that whoever succeeded cosimo as head of the house should be both capable and popular so that cosimo's feeling regarding his two sons was not unnatural nor did giovanni come short of his father's hopes in this respect his ability good sense tact and knowledge of men made him highly popular and he promised to be a worthy successor to cosimo so as piero's health grew from year to year worse all the hopes of the family rested on giovanni the latter was married to ginevra degla albizzi one of that family who had so violently opposed cosimo in his earlier years and tried to compass his ruin and death giovanni and ginevra's only child a son then nine years old died in fourteen sixty one but alas for human hopes in fourteen sixty three one year before cosimo's own death giovanni the hope of the house died the grief into which the family were plunged at this serious misfortune was very great cosimo was broken down physically helpless and his death soon to be expected piero was likely to die any day and his eldest son lorenzo was only fourteen years old so that with giovanni dead it seemed that all the prospects of the family were destroyed for it was well known that powerful enemies including all those other families jealous of the one which was rising to such eminence were on the watch for an opportunity to bring its power to an end there is a pathetic story of the infirm and aged cosimo after this death of his favourite son having himself carried through the rooms of the spacious palace which he had built and which had seen two such gaps made in the family within three years and several times repeating too large a house now for so small a family giovanni was buried in the family church of san lorenzo which was then just finished and had been endowed by cosimo giovanni di bicci and piccarda had already been buried in the old sacristy and their grandson the second giovanni was now also interned there and when six years later his brother piero died the sculptor verrocchio donatello's best pupil was called upon to design a joint tomb for the two brothers 
and executed the very tasteful one which stands in the archway between the sacristy and the chapel of the madonna consisting of a sarcophagus of porphyry with bronze acanthus leaves climbing over it it is verrocchio's earliest important work cosimo fourteen sixty four cosimo died on the first of august fourteen sixty four at his beloved villa of caracci at the age of seventy five piero in relating their grandfather's death to his two sons the following day says as follows quote, he counselled me that as you had good abilities i ought to bring you up well and you would then relieve me of many cares he said that he did not wish any pomp or demonstration at his funeral he reminded me as he had told me before of where he wished to be buried in san lorenzo and he said all in such an orderly manner and with so much prudence and spirit that it was wonderful he added that his life had been long therefore he was well content to leave it when god willed yesterday morning he had himself completely dressed he then made his confession to the prior of san lorenzo after which he caused mass to be said making the responses as if he were in health afterwards being asked to make profession of his faith he said the creed word for word said the confession himself and then received the holy sacrament doing so with as much devotion as one can describe having first asked pardon of every one for any wrongs he had done them which things have encouraged me in my hope towards god Unquote. cosimo's popularity with his countrymen lasted to the very end as well as the respect with which he was regarded by the rulers of all other states he was buried as he had desired without any pomp and at first in the old sacristy of san lorenzo the signoria had planned to give him a magnificent funeral and a very imposing monument but the medici family on the proposal being put before them refused to have either the people however were determined to give him some special honour a public decree was therefore passed by the signoria conferring on him the title of pater patriae and ordering that this should be inscribed by the republic on his tomb it therefore bears the honourable inscription cosimus medicis hic situs est decreto publico pater patriae no greater honour could have been done him than that such a title should thus be given him after his death and by this title of pater patriae he has ever since been known in history but the honour done to cosimo's memory was not confined to giving him the title of father of his country a further and more peculiar honour was conferred san lorenzo founded in such ancient times is the ambrosian basilica having beneath its high altar many highly venerated relics of the martyrs and an ancient rule of the catholic church prohibited out of reverence thereto the burial of any persons in such basilicas only permitting them to be buried in sacristies or chapels attached to the church and although in special cases persons of importance were allowed to be buried in the vault below the church none so interred were permitted to have a tombstone in the church but their tombstones were required to be placed in the vault there are consequently no tombstones in the pavement of the nave of san lorenzo except one 
This solitary exception is in the case of Cosimo Patapatriae. Migliore, in his interesting old book entitled Firenze, Sitta Noblissima, 1684, in describing the church of San Lorenzo, gives the following account of this matter. Quote, and here is to be seen maintained a most laudable disposition of the canons of the church, especially at the Council of Bragarense, held in Portugal under Giovanni the Third, which is not to allow the burial of the dead in the basilica, out of reverence to the relics of the blessed martyrs. And in accordance with this disposition, you find at the foot of the altar, in the middle of the pavement, placed in the memory of Cosimo Padre della Patria, the marble memorial in a circle of serpentine and porphyry, with the arms of the Medici at the four sides. But the body is not in the place which is thus represented, but is placed beneath in the vault, with all the other personages buried in that church, without any description of them in the pavement above them. This was a sign of the difference which ought to be maintained between them, and him who was like a founder of this church, also as a man who, much separated from the crowd, had no equal in those happy times when the fame of worthy persons travelled upon the wings of fortune, so that one who well knew his qualities sums up all by saying, Via potens famosus in toto mundo, a man most able, famous in all the world. None, added Il Volterano, in public affairs of such capacity, nor in learning, wisdom, and knowledge his equal. Unquote. After dilating on all that Cosimo did for the Republic and Italy, the account concludes by saying, quote, After his death, the Republic conferred on him the honourable title of Pater Patriae, never before conferred on any one in that Republic, and rarely even in that of Rome, and this was accompanied by extraordinary pomp at the sole cost of the Republic in transferring his body to this sepulchre, which brought to mind that given to Fabius Maximus. Unquote. And if we penetrate into the vault below, we find in what a peculiar way this special honour to Cosimo was carried out. Evidently the Florentines were determined to do nothing by halves in the matter, for instead of finding, as we should have expected, a sarcophagus with Cosimo's name on it, placed in the vault underneath the memorial slab in the pavement of the church, we find immediately below the porphyry slab a large square pillar of about eight feet on each side, extending right up to the floor of the church above, and having on it only the Medici arms and one short Latin inscription of five words, simply stating that Piero has placed this to the memory of his father. This pillar is Cosimo's tomb. His own name does not appear on it at all, that is borne by the porphyry slab above, the whole being thus joined together in one monument. It was an honour never, then or afterwards, accorded to any one else in Florence, and thus is Cosimo, after all in reality, buried in front of the high altar of San Lorenzo. An immense amount has been written on Cosimo's character, and as usual in the case of the Medici, the most violently opposite views have been enunciated. Those with whom the name of Medici overthrows or balance can see in him no virtues. Thus, even a comparatively temperate writer like Simmons, 
who is far surpassed by others on that side, calls Cosimo a cynical, self-seeking bourgeois tyrant. But Simmons would have found it hard to substantiate his string of epithets out of the facts of Cosimo's life. Other writers declare that every seeming virtue in Cosimo was assumed for some unworthy end, but there are many facts of Cosimo's life which decline to accord with this assertion. Nor, had it been true, could Marsilio Ficino have written, I owe to Plato much, to Cosimo no less. He realized for me the virtues of which Plato gave me the conception. Simmons and other writers accuse Cosimo of having undermined the liberties of Florence. But the changes introduced by him in the form of the Constitution were few and unimportant. The truth was that Florence, notwithstanding her republican forms, had never really possessed freedom, and that the people, wearied of perpetual dissensions, strife, banishments, and the losses which these entailed, welcomed the stable and efficient government which Cosimo gave them. Had it not been so, his rule, resting solely on popularity, would promptly have been terminated. There was, however, in Florentine politics, a Medician party and an anti-Medician party, and the latter put forward assertions, quite regardless of whether these had any solid basis, which in later times have formed the ground of unbalanced judgments and exaggerated statements, which have been repeated by one writer after another, as though they expressed the acknowledged verdict of history. And at the hands of such writers, Cosimo has fared ill indeed. His arduous labours for the welfare of the state and people have been declared due solely to personal ambition. The far-sighted statesmanship by which he managed to control for so long a period the destinies of his country and to guide her affairs with such success has been declared to have been merely a crafty plan pursued with the utmost dissimulation to pave the way towards the destruction of the Republic. Deeds of his done purely for the benefit of the people have been either dismissed as of little importance, or else attributed to sinister motives. Lastly, even the title placed upon his tomb by his countrymen has been represented as a mere empty compliment. Though compliments are seldom thought necessary when the person no longer survives to hear them. All this, however, involves the assumption that an exceptionally quick-witted race, specially on the watch against attempts to steal away their independence, should in this one instance, and throughout so long a period as thirty years, have displayed a want of discernment at variance with all their history. Machiavelli's estimate of Cosimo is as follows, quote, He was one of the most prudent of men, grave and courteous and of venerable appearance. His early years were full of trouble, exile and personal danger, but by the unwearied generosity of his disposition he triumphed over all his enemies and made himself most popular with the people. Though so rich, yet in his mode of living he was always very simple and without ostentation. None of his time had such an intimate knowledge of government and of state affairs, Hence, even in a city so given to change, he retained the government for thirty years. Unquote. Unwearied generosity of disposition exactly expresses the general idea 
which is given us by the facts of Cosimo's life as the most prominent feature of his character. And setting aside all testimony of writers on the one side or the other, the indisputable benefits which he conferred on his country, the end which he put to faction-fighting, which sapped Florence's strength, the prosperity and the contentment which he secured for the people, the relief from taxation which he brought about by the effects of his unlightened foreign policy, and lastly, the general character associated with his memory in the minds of the common people of Tuscany, all go to refute the unbalanced judgments which have been referred to, and to corroborate those who have considered that the title engraved by his countrymen upon his tomb was justly deserved, and correctly sums up the leading features of his character and conduct. End of section 10